The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So we started last week a discussion of wisdom. And uh, some of you know the Buddhist path, the way he taught. He really emphasized this point of wisdom. And in this context tonight, and then probably one more week, we're talking about it as one of the ten perfections of the heart. So this is a really beautiful list of mental heart qualities. We have generosity, integrity, or this commitment to not harming, renunciation, um, wisdom, energy, patience, resoluteness, equanimity, loving-kindness, and patience. So these are the ten perfections. And they're described in the tradition as the qualities that are present, that are well-developed in for anyone who becomes awake. Like So they're the qualities that make a mind capable of deep insight. So last week I mentioned, for those who weren't here, that really one of the most um, common and powerful first steps into wisdom, you know, as we're living our life and the mind becomes wiser, one of the first expressions is we're actually, the mind is actually interested in suffering and the end of suffering. And as I mentioned last week, it's extraordinary how we can go through life and that topic, like our own experience of stress and the release from stress, doesn't seem relevant. Other things seem relevant, like are the links going to win tonight? (laughs) Maybe that's where some of our friends are right now. There's a playoff game. So there's a lot of things that we are interested in, or, you know, what kind of silverware to buy, or what sort of electronic device, or should I date this person or not, or should I come to Common Ground on Sunday evening? And these things seems so important. Or what should I wear, you know, when we wake up tomorrow? Or what time should I go to bed tonight? Or is it okay if I eat something when I go home? And there's just countless things that our mind feels obliged, feels motivated to think about, seems important to think about. But then let's reflect how often do we take up this question how is it that this mind, body, heart, how is it that it gets bound up, caught up, entangled in stressful states? And how is it that it becomes free or released? And a lot of the reason we don't take that study up is we've come to a conclusion in life that we're helpless. Like, yes, suffering comes and sometimes it's peaceful, but... It has nothing to do with me. It's like, what's that bumper sticker? S-H-I-T, happens. Right? We think it just happens to us. Bad stuff happens to us. And good stuff happens to us. And neutral stuff happens to us. But there's a sense of being helpless, like 
it's random or it's out of my control. So the first step toward uncovering, understanding wisdom is to inhabit this space where the mind recognizes how suffering, how stressful states arise and cease here and now in my mind, in this mind, it's relevant. That actually, this is an empowering insight. There's something to learn. So it's the opposite of helplessness. It's a sense of empowerment. Like I maybe haven't learned it, but there's something to learn about how I actually end up suffering. What is the mind doing? How is the mind seeing or understanding that leads to life feeling really, this moment feeling really oppressive? Or in those moments where life doesn't feel oppressive at all, feels really light, what is this mind doing? How is it understanding? How is it relating? So that now the experience of being a human being is very easy, it's very light, it's very free. What's changed? So then once we have that first step, you know, where we think it's actually a relevant question, and, you know, it's sort of what unifies or common thing about people come to Common Ground or a place like Common Ground is we have enough humility that, that this issue of suffering and the, and the end of suffering is interesting to us. Like we don't arrogantly assume we already know all there is to know about suffering and the end of suffering. And we're interested in cultivating the tools that will help us be a little bit more reflective of insight. So this is a path of insight where specifically it's not about having insight about migratory birds, you know, and noticing. I saw a flicker in our backyard this morning. I mean, there's a lot of things when we're mindful that we start to notice, like even just how we're holding tension in the body. But it's not about all of those good things to notice. It's really we're using the awareness, the mindfulness, to specifically have insight into the causes of suffering and the causes of the release or the cessation of suffering. Because it's what's most relevant. Even if we don't think it's relevant, it's still relevant. You know, just because people don't think the issue of suffering in the end of suffering is relevant, it's still relevant. It's like built in. And so much of our work as a spiritual you know, seeker or whatever you want to call yourself, is getting to that place. It's really a place of compassion where we realize there is a life here, a body, mind, whatever you want to call it, and I care about it. And it's not like you have to generate that care. It's already there, that basic goodness, that basic compassion. I mean, we can be distracted from it, of course, unaware of it, but it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means the mind is unaware of it. And the question is how to sustain that recognition as we go through all the little twists and turns of our day. So whatever we're doing, driving in traffic, making a meal, having a conversation, there is this pervading sense, this very simple and pervading sense, I care about this life. I mean, it really changes things to keep remembering that I care about this life. 
if we care about this life, then naturally we're going to care about how this mind gets into really oppressive, entangled, heavy states and how this mind ends up in states that are very light and free and loving. And so the Buddha has a basic formula. Because if we just keep doing the same old thing, we get the same old results. So he says, the first step is something new has to enter the picture, right? And so generally it's like hearing something from somebody else, getting some teaching. So we have a teacher, the Buddha, who taught you know, 2,500 years ago or so. He was a human being who had some deep insight and not only had some deep insight, because there are a lot of beings who have the same deep insight that the Buddha had, but what makes the Buddha a Buddha, you know, it's a title. It's a title for somebody who has this insight without the support of somebody else with the insight, right? Nobody told the Buddha how to practice, so we're fortunate because we have the Buddha, the instructions, and then, of course, all the people who practice since the time of the Buddha and their own interpretation of the Buddhist teachings, comments on the Buddhist teachings. We have all of that, so it's not as hard. So a Buddha is a title for somebody who does it on their own and can articulate their insight in a way that makes it easy for other people to have the same insights, the same understanding. So we're in this lineage of people And so this is the first part of wisdom, receiving teachings that challenge our habit energies, right? Because if we don't get an input that challenges our habit energies, we just keep doing the same thing and getting the same results. Nothing will change. So there has to be new input. So we get a set of teachings, like just something simple, like mindful awareness is the most important thing, you know? I like, I, I like to call it the universal solvent. And I think of the Grand Canyon and what water has done. Some of you probably have seen the Grand Canyon or other sort of features that have been eroded because of you know eons of water. And it's amazing that something like water could cut uh, you know, a canyon a mile deep in the earth. Pretty powerful. So awareness has the same sort of tenacious, persistent uh, capacity to undo whatever our thinking mind, whatever the thinking mind has constructed, no matter how much momentum or habit energy, like some of you maybe have a lot of habit energy about being arrogant, others maybe have a lot of habit energy, huge personality trait of being defensive or superficial, or, you know, everything under the sun, probably even within this own, this room here, you know, just the, you know, in, in Buddhist terms, you know, they like these, this sort of vast sense of cosmology that this mind has been migrating from one life to the next an inconceivable number of times. So, the kind of conditioning, it's not just like the habit energies from this particular culture and our particular parents or something like that, but we've been 
reinforcing the habits of being afraid or the habits of being greedy or the habits of being distracted or the habits of being superficial for a long time. But no matter how much momentum there there is, mindful awareness is the universal solvent. It will create the space for the disentangling or the unwinding or the opening up or the freeing up of that habit energy. So, we get that information, right? Like I just gave you a little pep talk on mindful awareness, the power of mindful awareness. And now it's entered as, right, it's just a concept, right? I've just told you some words. So it exists as some information, conceptual information. That's the first step. Or, you know, you could take something from the Buddha. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. So some of you know one of the pithy teachings and and essential teaching in the Buddhist teachings is around the impersonal nature of everything, including our own thoughts, our own mental activity. It's just nature. It's not self in the, the way we would think of it as a permanent, essential me. It's just the activity of nature, whether it's the wind or the weather or flocks of birds, or mental activity. And that, as nature, is simply following causes and conditions, doing what it's meant to do, given all that's in play. So, we get it, we get the new information conceptually, it challenges our fixed notions. Well, no, 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 there's me here. Or, you know, what's the big deal about mindful awareness? You know, I don't need to pay attention I already know what's going to happen. I already know I'm at common ground. I've heard these talks before. I don't really need to be intimate. I don't need to be present. You know, I know what my body feels like. Why would I have to be aware? You know, it's like, it seems silly. I've breathed in before. You know, I've sipped tea before. Why do I actually have to be there? I've had conversations with my wife. Why do I actually have to be there for it? Right? I mean, we have these attitudes about life. It's like, I know it. It's like we justify not being present. So then we get this information, no, no. If you want to be free, if you want to be happy, if you don't want to end up in hell, you need to be awake. You have to wake up with mindful awareness. So then we've gotten the information, now we reflect on it. and We start to play with it. So we're either in a meditation or we're going about our day and we remember the bit of information because we not only heard it, or read it, but then we memorize it. Okay, I'm, I'm really going to remember that mindful awareness is a big deal, or being calm is a big deal. And then we sort of pull it out some moment in the day or some moment in our meditation. And then that concept, that intellectual bit of information, it sort of frames or illuminates the present moment experience. So then now, in a sense, I'm thinking about mindful awareness in terms of what it does or doesn't do in the present moment. You know, we sort of try it on. Okay, so what is this mindful awareness? Is it something I do? Is it something that's here? Does it take effort? Is it effortless? Right? And we're sort of using the present moment reality to the concept is sort of uh, showing the knowing mind, the discerning mind, the kind of 
combination of wisdom and awareness, sort of aiming it like how to look at the present moment, how to connect with the present moment. Because I'm exploring not clinging, non-attachment, or I'm exploring the meaning of mindful awareness as an actuality, not as a thought now. I started at a bit, uh, it started as a bit of information, a concept, but now I'm exploring it, mindfulness or whatever theme, whatever bit of information from the Buddhist teachings we're taking up. Now we're looking at, uh, for it as an actual dynamic in the present moment, an actual happening. Right, like I could teach you the most important thing is the experience of hardness or softness in your body, a sensation. So then you have the idea like hardness is really a, it's not it, you know that, right? (laughs) Hardness is just sensation or softness is just another kind of sensation. But let's say I make a big deal, but the concept hardness is not the same thing as, you know, feeling your two teeth touching. That's the experience of hardness, right? Oh, but that, you know, when you touch your two teeth, that actual experience of hardness has nothing to do with the concept hardness. Right? The concept is a concept. The idea or the word hardness is not the same as that experience of, you know, pushing down on something hard, what we call something hard. That is one thing and the concept is another. So that's the reflection. That's the second part of wisdom where we take what we've learned or memorized and we explore present moment reality. When we say dharma or dhamma, present moment reality, the way it is, we're not talking about our concept of it. We're talking about the isness of it. So in terms of here tonight, You've heard this example, many of you have heard this example before. So the concept is, it's Sunday night, I'm at Kamagam Meditation Center, this is a Buddhist meditation center, and I'm learning a little bit about the Buddhist teachings on awareness practice. That's a concept, but then that concept, especially if it's designed right, you know, can actually help us show up Because this moment as it actually is, you don't need the concept of Sunday. You don't need the concept of Kamagam Meditation Center. You don't need the concept of Buddhist awareness practice to be intimate with this. But those concepts can lead us here, can kind of create a doorway, or they can lead to endless proliferation. You know, like... uh, if our concept in, involved some evaluation, like Kamagan's a great place, or I'm not so sure about Kamagan, then I might be thinking, well, there are other Dharma centers, meditation centers in town. Maybe they're better, or maybe they're worse. And we could spend our whole time wondering and comparing to other places we've been and never really be here. In the same way that you could be thinking about mindfulness of breathing, your whole meditation, and not actually connecting with the reality of breathing in. Not the idea, but the sensations of breathing in, the sensations of breathing out. So the first part is getting some information. And if the information is good, 
it's going to aim the mind or it's going to be conducive for this reflection, this contemplation. So we're, it's framing or illuminating and forming present moment reality of the mind and body, which is this. And one thing about this, what we call Dhamma or Dharma, the way it is, is it's not a fragmented experience. It takes concepts to fragment this experience. There's a sense of wholeness to this present moment. And we're learning to be intimate with that. We're using the concepts, the teachings of the Buddha to help get close, to be intimate in order for the third part of wisdom to arise, which is insight. So in this tradition, we often refer to this lineage, especially in the West, of the Buddhist teachings as insight meditation or sometimes you hear of vipassana meditation. Vipassana just means insight or clear seeing. So this is an insight meditation center coming out of Theravada Buddhism. And we're interested in this third part of wisdom, but you need the first two. We need to get the pointing out instructions, right? We need information that challenges our normal mode, normal habits. And then we need to bring that information up in our meditation times or throughout the day so that we're letting that information help the mind connect with experience in and of itself. So not in terms of my ideas. So the idea doesn't color, but the idea actually supports a more bare attention, a more simple, clear, unadorned presence with the activity of the present moment. Right? So the Buddha didn't tell us, you know, oh, this is the way it is. He gave us a methodology to directly, immediately experience the way that it is. He didn't say, Dharma is this, the way it is is this way. Because he wants, we need each to see it ourselves. Like they say in the tradition, you know, the Buddha has done his work, our enlightened, you know, ancestors of the women and men who've done the practice before us. They've done their work, now it's our turn turn to do our work. Their awakening, their freedom, their kind of resonant compassion and skill in life doesn't make us compassionate or skillful or free. We have to, they can inspire us to do our work, but nobody can do our work for us. So this is a path the Buddha talked a lot about the importance of self-reliance, not having magical thinking that somebody can do it for you. We need to hear the information. We need to memorize it. You don't need to memorize a lot, you know. Like you have to remember the value of mindful awareness. You have to at least hold the possibility that whatever this is that's unfolding, that I call my life, that it's not what I think it is, you know, about me. So we have to suspend our conditioned ideas, like what we've been brought up thinking about this mind-body experience, we at least have to 
uh, engage mindful awareness with an open mind. Which means we're not expecting something, not expecting an experience to happen. But we're open. That's why we use that word a lot, like be open. Be open. Don't expect something. Just receive, just see clearly whatever does arise in your mind and body experience. Let that inform your understanding, not your understanding telling you what you're going to experience, but your understanding is saying you don't really know until you practiced opening. So it really begins with a sense of humility. So these are a lot of the initial instructions. And then we work with them, and then we start having insight. This is what uh, Gil Fransdahl, a well-known teacher in the West Coast, says about this. He's got a nice book called, um, what is it called now? The Issue at Hand, that you can get online. If you just Google The Issue at Hand by Gil Fransdahl, you'll get that book. And you'll probably get to his website uh, from the Insight Meditation Center um, in uh, near Palo Alto in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And they've got a lot of great resources on that website. So in this chapter on wisdom, he says, the third kind of wisdom, right, the insight, is that of developing meditation. Right? Meditation just means getting close to the way it is. So when we meditate, we're just maximizing or optimizing the circumstances to allow the heart or mind to be intimate with the underlying nature of things or to be intimate with the way it is. That's what meditation... So really, ideally, we're meditating all day long, but sometimes during the day, like when you sit still and the cat is in the other room and the phone is off and your housemates leave you alone, then those moments, that hour or that 30 minutes, it's going to be a little bit easier to open to the way it is than when we're in traffic or having a conversation. This is the understanding that arises from developing the qualities of mind, such as mindfulness, that allow us to see deeply into the nature of our experience. Most people take their experience for granted, relating only to surface appearances. We tend not to question the very nature of experience itself and miss an opportunity to see more deeply. As the non-discursive investigation of mindfulness becomes stronger, so non-discursive means the mind isn't uh, dependent on mental activity. So there may be thought, but the mind isn't being pushed around by the thought or confused by the thought. So as the non-discursive investigation of mindfulness becomes stronger, our vision is less and less filtered through our ideas. We begin to see things more clearly for what they are. As mindfulness becomes more penetrating, we see the three universal characteristics of experience. All All experiences are impermanent. None are satisfactory refuges of lasting happiness. And no experience or thing known through awareness can qualify as a stable self. So whatever the object of awareness might be, you have a very personal memory arising. And awareness sees that. Awareness will understand when mindfulness is strong that that memory is not self. It's just something being known. 
Or you might have a very strong emotion. But if mindfulness is strong and is aware of that joy or aware of that sadness, the mindfulness will understand that's not self. It's just sadness being known or just joy being known. He goes on, he says, as we meet these characteristics directly, wisdom grows. So again, the three characteristics. So this is a bit of information that's useful too. Like some people actually memorize the three characteristics. So this is the Buddha is reporting from his own meditation, his own um, practice of being awake, aware, that what he came to realize is that everything is changing. So whatever the mind, the awareness in the mind is being open to, seeing clearly, it will see it as a changing process. There is nothing static or fixed anywhere. And this is where concepts become so deluding because when we have the concept like Sunday night or Calm Ground Meditation or Mark Nunberg, the concept creates the delusion of permanence, doesn't it? Like when I think I'm Mark Nunberg, there's a sense of finality about that. Like I've been Mark Nunberg for a long time. And it, it seems like, but the fact, like the actual experience, what we call Dharma or Dhamma, the way it is, Mark Nunberg, it's not the same. I mean, even today, an infinite numbers of that reality of what I refer to as me or Mark Nunberg, right? It's not one thing. But the concept or common ground meditation center isn't a thing. It's like this very fluid changing phenomenon. So the concepts can be quite diluting. So things change. And because of that, no experience will be fully satisfactory. It won't make us like won't be a refuge for happiness. Have you had an experience that has been a lasting refuge for happiness? You might have had a really great experience, like being really loved by another human being. But doesn't you know, then it's gone. And this is true with all the bad and pleasant and in between experiences we've had. They are what they are, pleasant, unpleasant or neutral but they don't provide a lasting refuge. Has anything provided a lasting refuge? Any experience? No, because they change. So that's the characteristic. And then the third is they're impersonal. They come and go, and they're not self. They're nature, right? The nature is to come and go naturally due to all those causes and conditions. We begin to understand that suffering, uh, the suffering that comes from resisting the constant flux of experience. We begin to see that mindfulness can lead, lead us to a happiness that is not dependent on our experience. And we gain ease in our lives. We find a place of freedom with no self to defend or bolster. We can see our shortcomings and our pain without their limiting us without them limiting us, without believing that they define who we are. Right? This is so liberating when I can be defensive or I can be, you know, do something humiliating. And 
to realize that, to be clearly aware, intimate, but not to have to be burdened by being an imperfect human being. It's such a relief to be a to sort of recognize the reality of being an imperfect human being and not expect it to be other than what it is or to live in an imperfect culture. And a lot of people think, well, that's kind of giving up, isn't it? But actually, it really frees one up to engage more fully because I'm not, I'm not sort of desperately trying to make me or the world different than it is. It's so much easier to effectively connect and engage in the world because we're not deluded. We're not thinking it should be other than what it is. It's like we could be lamenting the inequalities, like they shouldn't be this way, but that's like saying, you know, it shouldn't be fall. It is this way. You know, we live in a culture that has a lot of inequities. And so we want to be able to be intimate with that, to see it clearly, to understand the underlying forces that make things the way that they are so that that our participation is transforming. But we could spend a long time thinking and arguing about it shouldn't be this way. But that doesn't really change things. What changes things is getting intimate and responding from that place of being clearly aware, being intimate. He has one more paragraph here. The perfection of wisdom, of insight, comes when the heart and mind neither cling to nor resist anything. Seeing the three characteristics is a powerful step to this perfection. It leads to an awareness that doesn't appropriate, doesn't fixate, on our experiences, right? So the mind isn't dependent. It's intimate, it's awake, but it's not clinging to the experiences that are coming and going. He goes on and says, the mind and heart allow experiences to reside and pass through as they are. From this place, we can more wisely decide how to act, when to take a stand, and how to say what needs to be said. The art of liberation is learning how to do what we have to do in life without the mind or heart becoming contracted or tense. In the poem Ash Wednesday, T.S. Eliot expresses this wisdom beautifully. Quote, teach us to care and not to care. Unquote. To care and not to care at the same time. It's not one or the other. Like that phrase you see in the Bible in the world, but not of the world. And he ends here, more often than we realize, we have an alternative to holding things in opposition. Study, reflection, and developing insight strengthen the practice of mindfulness. They help us toward liberation and bring harmony to our lives and the lives of others. So this is really the essence of wisdom as a practice is hearing or learning, or studying, getting some new perspectives, new ideas that are different than the existing ideas, and then putting them to work in our direct experience. So we're really looking at our experience in terms of those ideas, opening, being mindful, 
and gathering insights, right? Because when we then open in a different way, so normally we open from a self-centered view because we just, it's our habit. It's a very deep habit. So when I'm not awake, when I'm not practicing, then it all feels personal. But when my mind is more in uh, the place of mindful awareness, then that habit of personalizing, like it's like a coloring in the mind that this is personal. When it's not doing that, or even when it is doing it, awareness is aware, oh yeah, the mind is coloring it this way. Just like when we're irritated, oh, the mind is coloring everything, every perception is being colored by my irritation or by my impatience. Or if you're in one of those sort of like syrupy, sentimental modes, then the mind colors everything in that way. Oh, it's so nice you all came tonight, you know, or whatever coloring the mind has, but we can be aware of it. And that awareness is a step towards liberation. Seeing how the mind colors things is how we become free. So I'll leave it here so we have about 15 minutes. It would be nice to, maybe people can share, of course, any questions you have, but share it in your own life too about times when you got a bit of information, a little teaching, something you read, something a friend told you, something you heard in a talk, and then how that bit of information kind of got under your skin. It sort of like provoked your interest. and You couldn't let it go, and it started to inform your actual experience. Like you kept working it or kept bringing it up, it had kept illuminating, and you started to have, started to see things you hadn't seen before. Because your mind was opening under the influence of this information, this particular view. So any thoughts you have, any questions you have? And uh, remember, you need to point the mic right at your mouth. That makes it easy for everybody to hear. Who would like to begin? Okay, you want to pass it back? And it's nice for folks to say their names. Thanks. Uh, my name is Jeremy. Um, I read a quote once from uh, Emerson. said, um, our lives are an apprenticeship to the truth that around every circle another circle can be drawn. And that phrase kind of got under my skin and I started to see just how when the world was lighter for me, things seemed to expand. The circle seemed to get wider. And that when things got heavier, the circle seemed to close. And so that contraction... And that opening and closing kind of became kind of like a rhythmic harmony that I could see kind of comparison with breath, could see kind of all around. And it comes and goes, but, but that quote has kind of stuck with me. So, Yeah. And one way or another, we need some teaching that reminds us of what I talked about last week, suffering and the end of suffering. And whenever the mind is caught in some view, then as Jeremy says, we directly experience the contraction or the limitation, the mind is imprisoned with that idea. Whatever the self-centered drama might be, I'm the best, I'm the worst, or whatever, that if we can tune into the contraction, the limitation, not of the idea, but of the mind's being fixed or attached, identified with the idea, right? 
And then in experiences of being light, right, it's like mindful awareness itself has an unbounded or whole quality to it. Because it takes the mind being fixed on concepts to fragment and limit one's experience. And we begin, you know, when we have a frame like that, then we can really learn something about suffering and the end of suffering. Because the frame, it's like we need that frame to be able to investigate, or some frame similar to that. Thanks, Jeremy. Who would like to go next? Thoughts or questions? Yeah, over here. Uh, My name is Ben. And um, something that you said, Mark, I don't know if it was last week or a couple weeks ago, um, has helped me a lot over the intervening time. And that was, and I'm going to not say it exactly right, but something like if you're you're suffering, um, and you can interpret that a lot of ways, but I interpret it like, hey, you know, I'm not feeling good right now, whatever. I'm interacting with someone and I'm not feeling good. Um, Then touch base and and think about that that there's something about how you're thinking about that is off or yeah um i i, I no no that's that's basically yes something does that sound right yeah because it's related to what i just said too after jeremy's comment but so in the way the buddha talks about it and this is for us to check out in our own experience so here's another bit of information from the buddha that the more you study your moment-to-moment experience, you always will correlate contraction or suffering with wrong view, self-view. Yes. And if it's not just the self-view, but it's the thinking that comes out of that wrong view, that self-centered view. So then if you're suffering, then you can always ask, where's the wrong thinking? It's not so easy to catch wrong view because it's very subtle. Like, Taking things personally is so subtle. It's so built into the cognitive systems. But you can catch wrong thinking, the thinking that's coming out of self-view. So whenever you're suffering, whenever your heart feels bound up, tight, things feel heavy, dark, difficult, then just ask that question. This is what Ben was talking about. Where is the wrong thinking? So you're just sort of looking. Okay, there's thinking going on. What thinking is cor- correlates with this contraction? So that if that thinking ceases, the contraction ceases. That they arise together. Because if there's suffering, then that means suffering is being constructed in the moment. Suffering doesn't last. It has to be constructed moment by moment. So does freedom, by the way. right? Not constructed, but freedom disappears whenever the mind constructs suffering. So it's like when we're aware of freedom and then it disappears, that means wrong thinking, wrong view has arisen. And you see this a lot. You know, this is what's great about meditation because if you do get into a, a peaceful place of meditation and you're there, it's not even you're aware of the breath coming in or you're aware of the breath going out or you're aware of the whole body as you breathe in. You're, it's just sensations, sensations. It's just the activity of sensation coming and going, flowing, no body, no problem. And then the thought arises, this is great. 
And you see right then with that thought, this is great, or oh, or why can't it be great like it was great when I meditated yesterday? But as soon as the thought comes in, you see the contraction that goes with that self-centered thought. And it was the mind, the heart, body was so expansive, so light, so free, and all of a sudden, it's dense, it's heavy, it's entangled. And it's so much more apparent in the quiet, the relative quiet and simplicity of a meditation period. Same thing's happening out in daily life, but the contrast isn't so great, you know, from heaven to hell, basically. Yeah, and I just want to say one more thing, which is, um, so when I when I get to that place, I now have this like list of things that that help me get to right view, whatever that is. But um, so the first thing I do is I think compassion. So basically, I get out of myself mm-hmm. and like have goodwill for the other person, whatever mm-hmm. that means, or or however I can do that. And the next thing I do is. I think, okay, everything changes. So whatever I'm feeling now, that's just going to change pretty soon or sometime. And the next thing I think of is, um, this is the hardest part for me, which is the concept of self or not self. Yeah. But I work at that. Yeah. And the other one is just connecting to my body, like what's going on with my body, how am I actually feeling kind of getting out of my mind. So I go through those four things, and that really helps me a lot. Yeah, and they're just a per- that's a perfect example, Ben, of taking some of the information you've heard from the Buddhist teachings and making it real in your experience and using the information to direct, like to shape how awareness is connecting with the way it is, right? And remember, the, and I mentioned this last week, this, like, this really good example that Ben gave That's the raft. Remember the metaphor of the raft? You build the raft with things around you to get across the floods, the habits of proliferating and worrying and getting tight and all the ways we do that. So we need these sort of methods in order to realize a kind of freedom. When we have the freedom, we don't need the methods. The people who need methods are people who are not free, right? So as long as we're somebody who gets entangled, somebody who gets upset, somebody who gets tied up in knots, we need these skillful means. We need these techniques, these gimmicks, or whatever you want to call them. We need to hear the teachings. We need to remember them. We need to make them our own, like to sort of do a translation so that we can bring them up in a moment and they can help the mind free up, drop, or abandon its self-centered struggles and realize that it can be free. It can be present, awake, without clinging, without grasping in the moment. Thanks, Ben. Good to hear that. Other thoughts? we got a few more minutes. Yeah, over here. Thank you. I'm Vijay. Uh, so, Mark, like a couple of weeks back, uh, you were told one information, like uh, we have to leave the bag to be free. So that was Say that a, last sentence again? No, we have to leave the bag which is holding us or which is stressing us. Yeah. But uh, what we are trying, like without leaving the bag, we are trying to do something to be free. But that was a great information for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Other thoughts? Yeah, Eric. I was uh, listening to 
a talk by Joseph Goldstein recently, and he was talking about mindfulness in terms of um, being multifaceted and uh, specifically having three aspects to it. And for me, that that's been incredibly helpful to to remember that um, mindfulness is more than just being aware and more than just being aware of our own awareness, but there's also this aspect of relating in a non-judgmental, um, impartial sort of way. So I like to think about mindfulness in terms of like a tripod that's sort of supporting um, happiness, really, or or freedom. And I think that it's it's easy to to get um, deluded in a way, uh, thinking that we're being mindful in a particular situation when all we're really doing is being aware. Um, we're not necessarily relating in a way that is uh, free of that coloring or those filters that you were talking about. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And we know that mindfulness is strong when all suffering falls away, right? Because I mentioned earlier, mindfulness is the universe, universal solvent, meaning in this situation, it removes clinging, grasping, struggling from the mind. So as long as we feel like an ordinary human being with the world on our shoulders, then that means mindfulness is still superficial or all of the factors, all the, all the supporting factors haven't arrived yet to make mindfulness capable of revealing. It's like what mindfulness does when it really is in balance and strong is it, it's like it reveals how the mind is holding a hot pan and letting go happens. But until that time when letting go happens, there's still more mindful, it, like the mindfulness hasn't, doesn't have enough momentum yet. So part of what we're doing with the mo- mindfulness that we do have is we're seeing like how it could be stronger, like how it can be supported, more continuous, or what qualities, where is it weak? This is where the list of the seven factors of awakening can be useful, like do we need more of the tranquilizing factors or more of the energizing factors in our mind? Is our mind a little dull or is it a little too energized? What do we need to bring the mindfulness into balance? Because it's not so much mindfulness as like a power. It's really more about a balance. When it's really there, it's steady like a perfect mirror and that perfect mirror reflects exactly the way it is. So that anything that needs to be abandoned is abandoned. And if we're still feeling bound up, it just means that mindfulness isn't there yet. There are things happening that aren't being seen. And you can even ask the question, well, what isn't, you know, what's here and now, but not being seen, not being connected with? Is the heart operating, is the awareness operating out of habit? Is the, is the mindfulness afraid? Is it in a hurry? Does it have expectations? Like, is it judging? 
Is there aversion in the mind? So this kind of curiosity is how we purify the mindfulness until a moment will arise and mindfulness will come into balance and then all the activity of the mind, all the selfing activity will cease and then the mind will realize a moment of freedom. And then the mind... That, that moment of freedom, we say, has an unmistakable taste. You can't forget it. Oh, this is the mind free of suffering. This is the mind free of clinging or grasping. This is the mind with no problem. And then it's so much easier to start noticing suffering when you've experienced a mind that's not bound up at all. And even if it just lasts for an instant, and usually that's all it lasts. And this has happened to all of us but that doesn't mean you were awake when it happened, right? You might have been like the, the sort of non-clinging, non no greed, no anger, no distractedness was there, but the mind didn't really comprehend what had just happened. So now what we're doing is we're creating the conditions for when it happens to really comprehend what just happened, so that the mind can begin to generalize. Oh, this is the way to be. This is the way to be. To be inspired and to basically learn from its experiences of freedom. Time for maybe one more thought. If anybody has a last thought for the group. Anything come to mind? Yeah, please. This is a, a little bit of a strange one, but it has to do with the, the impersonal nature of experience. And um, I was watching The Wire this week, um, and um, this happens in lots of sort of gangster movies where someone you know, does something bad to somebody and says, it's not personal, it's just business, or it's just in the game. Or, mm-hmm. um, and it was a weird time to have a little bit of insight, I think. But, um, but it, it struck me that that is actually... the that what they're describing there is just a set of um, actors that follow a particular set of rules and that that leads to, in this case, you having drugs stolen from you or something like that. Um, But that that, uh, by analogy, I sort of suddenly got, I think, a little more what what we're talking about when we say the impersonal nature of all experience. Um, Yeah. That is yeah, happening yeah. to us. And there's a real power in understanding that impersonal nature. And it's not evaluating it as good or bad. And it doesn't mean we don't act to change it. It just means this is the nature. Like uh, some of you know that Denny Johnson, one of our longtime leaders here, died suddenly a couple of weeks ago in a tractor accident out at our retreat property. It just flipped over on him. We have some information about Denny on the bulletin board if you want to read about his life. But, uh, you know, I so I went out there that day that they found the body. And, of course, it's just he's a dear, dear friend of mine, was a dear, dear friend of mine. So it was tragic. But the pervading feeling was, you know, bouts of, like, waves of real emotion, sadness, tears, but also this pervading feeling like this is how it is. This is what happened. So, the, like, this happens sometimes. Now, not obviously a lot, but more than you think, these tractors tip over. And, uh, and just to kind of, like, not to make it 
unnatural, whatever it is, whatever beautiful or terrible thing that we hear about, not to set it outside of nature. No, no. If it happened, it's lawful. It's like it was the natural unfolding of all the causes and conditions there are at play. Now, we don't want to make something magical or was supposed to happen. And, you know, we tell ourselves stories about these things. No, it's just that there are all these interdependent forces and everything is happening, not so much the way it's supposed to, but it's happening lawfully. This is how it is. This is, and then to the degree we see it, we see the lawfulness, then we know, yeah, this is, this is the dynamic at play. It's 8.30, now it's time for us to go home. Right? This is how it is. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath or two together. We can be really appreciative of the information, these teachings that have been passed down through so many generations, women and men, in their busy lives, difficult lives, practicing as best they can, having real insight, sharing what they've learned one generation after another. And now we have received these teachings. It's our turn in our busy lives to do the best we can. So we're setting in motion the causes for real happiness, real freedom from suffering, peace, compassion. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.